Okay. Hi, I am Carly, recovered alcoholic, and I am doing my first ever online 30-minute lead. And I was asked by the wonderful Betsy, thank you so much for um, the honor and the privilege. So here we go. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999. My home group is called Practical Experience. It meets on Thursday nights, Eastern time, 7 p.m. We have a big book meeting that I lead. And then there's an eight o'clock big book meeting following that. I'm going over a different part of the book with a different speaker. All are welcome now because virtual, you can be everywhere. And um, I love a lead that I have a time limit because I talk a lot and otherwise I would just keep talking and this forces me to get right down to business. So I'm a recovered alcoholic. That's the most important thing I could tell you. And the reason why I'm recovered is because the big book tells me that's what's going to happen in the very first page of the book where it promises us that we will become recovered. And it says many, many times, my favorite part, it says we, that's the first 100 men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. I love the big book. If you don't want to hear about the big book or the steps, you probably should go on to a different meeting tonight because that's all I'm going to talk about besides my story. As the book says, I came to you with a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. The reason why I introduced myself as recovered is because I am. I no longer have a body that physically needs alcohol, and I no longer have a mind that believes it does. I want to make it very clear, I cannot drink alcohol. I would, If I drink alcohol, it would activate the physical allergy, the mental obsession would be off and running, and everybody would be screwed, mostly my kids. Um... So I'm recovered today because I no longer walk around in the state of hopelessness that I used to. And what else is important to point out is that it says seemingly hopeless state. And I didn't know when I got here that I thought it was hopeless, but you guys didn't because you had the solution and I did not. I'm just going to get right into it. Um, The way I like to describe the steps in the program and the disease is through analogy. And I'm going to just take you right to that. So the analogy that I've come up with is being, the reason why I close my eyes is because I have to picture myself there, is being in a disgusting building, in a disgusting room, in, I always say it's kind of like a crack house or frat house, similar kind of feel, smelly, smoky, crap all over the floor, the couch I'm sitting on is like covered in fluids and crust and cuts and tape and just gross, Um, loud banging music very hot and smoky in the room. I hear sirens outside because that's the fire department and police because the building's on fire that I'm in and I can't get out. And so step one is sitting in that room, dying of a mental obsession and a physical allergy like we do in Alcoholics Anonymous before we get here and not being able to get out. And I wanna take you through how I got to step one. So I grew up in an alcoholic home. It's not the reason why I'm, I am an alcoholic. My brother grew up in the same home and he's not an alcoholic. My parents are both in AA today, seven more years than me. But um, at the time that I was growing up in that home, it was very unpredictable and very predictable. It was scary. I learned at an early age that I needed to keep my outsides looking good so no one could really talk to me about my insides because I was taught at home not to tell anyone about what's going on because nobody wanted to stop. That was my mom, and I can't message her because I'm leading. Nobody wanted to stop. 
and be honest because then we would have to change how we're doing everything. And so really quickly from that home, I walked away with survival skills that survived me, that I survived from and through as I was doing my own drinking and using. And that was not to trust anyone, not to tell anyone about what's really going on and to just take care of yourself. When I was 13, I'd already started drinking and putting other things in my body and my parents got sober and I had started when I was 12 and they got sober when I was 13. Um, We were like ships passing in the night. They went to AA meetings every single night and I began my career of entering these rooms. I loved what alcohol did for me. It made me feel like a superhero. I mean, I love that I see on here because how often do you get to lead and see your face, which is not so exciting. I see my face smile when I talk about what alcohol did for me because I'm not someone who believes that people should be in a meeting and say that alcohol was bad. Alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. Alcohol was what set me free and set me on fire and gave me permission to just get out there and rage and live and let go and just be. It did that so well that I poured it into my body in whatever way I could possibly find it. And I did it so often and so hard that it almost killed me. Um, I'm just going to fast forward up towards the end. Let's see. I got to a place at the end of my drinking. I was 19 and a half years old. I had already sought out psychiatric help. I was on many medications, many doctors, scribbling on their notepads, trying to fix me. Um, I would tell them that I drink and use, but I didn't want to tell them how much because I didn't want them to touch that. And my problem that I was seeking was I had an emotional mental disorder and I needed someone to just give me the right medication or the right doctor and diagnosis so I could like get that taken care of and go on my merry way because I didn't want to stop what I was doing. And I was in a really horrible situation. I was in an open relationship. We lived together and that was a total mass nightmare. I was in theater. I was getting amazing grades, straight A's, Dean's List. I was going so fast that no one could stop me and I almost um, killed myself. So I'll just tell you, take you up to the end. Nothing made me feel better. Alcohol and the other things I put in my body, instead of it making me feel amazing, like I talked about before, it um, did some sort of boomerang where at no time that I was aware of, it switched directions. And instead of making me feel free and like I could breathe, it made me feel like... Um, It made me feel like everything was magnified and all the pain and intensity and feelings were so big that I couldn't breathe. And so instead of stopping, I put more and more in my body because I couldn't stand the feeling that I was getting and nothing made me feel better. So drinking no longer was my solution. Not drinking wasn't my solution. I had tried not to drink on my own. My mom was in AA seven years then and I was depressed and suicidal and told her about it. And I said, mom, I don't know what to do. And she said, Um, Why don't you try not drinking or using for three weeks and see how you can do it? I found out that I could do it and that that meant a couple things. Um, It meant that I was not a real alcoholic. These are all things that happened in my brain. I was not a real alcoholic because real alcoholics cannot go three weeks without drinking. I um, was worse when I wasn't drinking than when I was during this three-week period. And so my problem was truly that I had a psychiatric or emotional disorder that needed to be treated and that I was so uncomfortable and so miserable to be around that I needed to drink until I found the right doctor or medication. I also want to tell you that when I stopped drinking or using on my own um, in my apartment, I locked myself up there and smoked cigarettes and braided my hair. 
that I couldn't breathe, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't function, I couldn't go to class, I couldn't do anything. I hated every single moment of every day and I became angry and nuts. Um, fast forward to January 20th, 1999, I come out of an ice storm in Athens, Ohio at Ohio University out of a blackout that I said I wasn't going to drink anymore, another five-week-long blackout. I called the psychiatric hospital to check myself in because I was terrified I was going to kill myself, and nobody answered. I called this woman named Shell. Um, she was the director of one of my plays I was in in theater. She was in, in AA, and we met at a coffee shop. I wanted her to tell me what to do. I thought I was just a drug addict because I didn't know that my alcohol was as bad as it was, and I couldn't find that out until I got to AA. And she said she couldn't tell me what I was or wasn't. And she was going to a meeting across the street and I could come if I wanted to and I didn't have to if I didn't want to. And she got up and she left, which I love because um, I like the kind of work where I have to do the work. And I followed her across the meeting and looked down at my you know, floor, at my thumbs. And I went into the meeting and they gave me a big book and they wrote, call me any time on it. You're a perfect child of God. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I read something at the meeting and I cried and I was like, I know meetings. I've been to meetings. My parents go to meetings. I know all this. I can't believe I'm here. I dropped my hands for the Our Father. They told me something about sponsor. Don't drink. Go to meetings. Come back tomorrow. It's going to get better. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went home. I called my mom and dad and I told them I'm an AA. Everything is good. I told all the people I was in open relationships with, I was in AA, all the people I was in business with, all my theater friends, all my professors, all my party friends. I went to a bar that night. And I drank Diet Coke and smoked cigarettes and told everybody I was an AA. And then for the next five nights, that's how I lived. I went to meetings. I had no sponsor, no God. I didn't drink and I went to AA. I felt miserable and lost and broken and I couldn't breathe. And um, on the sixth night that I was supposed to go to my meeting, I didn't want to go to the meeting because they were stupid. And they said the same thing every single time you go there and they weren't helping and I hated it. And my boyfriend was going on a date. So I went out with his date's roommates and they offered me something that would have broken my sobriety. And I remember saying no and um, a tear rolling down my face and crying because I wasn't proud of myself. I was miserable and I wanted to get out of my pain. I went, um, we walked from her apartment to the bar where the part where the concert was. And I remember thinking as I saw the empty bottles of booze and backwash on each little curbside because there were so many bars in Athens. I thought that I, it was strange that I, since I was just a drug addict, it was strange that I wanted to kill the girls I was with. I wanted to take their two heads and smash them together and then drink the backwash alcohol if it meant I could get out of the pain. I went to the bar, I went to the bathroom, I looked in the mirror and I saw on the outside someone who was emaciated enough to be at the liking of my eating disorder at the time. I saw someone who on the outside looked how I visually wanted to look. And I saw that in my 19 and almost 20 year old eyes that I was going to either kill myself or overdose and that I was not gonna be able to stay sober because I hated this and I'm done. And I walked home that night and I cried and I was overwhelmed and I went into my apartment. My boyfriend was still on a date and there were things in our house that could have gotten me not sober anymore. I opened up my big book and I looked inside the page and it said, call me anytime. It was 1.30 in the morning. I thought, none of these people even know who I am. They're not gonna even know who I am if I call them at 1.30 in the morning. I closed the big book. Um, I started blasting Sarah McLaughlin really loud and smoking cigarettes and I changed into shorts and a flannel and tennis shoes. My boyfriend came home and I was crying. I was six days sober, not a drop of alcohol or drugs in my body. There's no physical craving in my body because you cannot physically crave something that you don't have in your body or don't, are not detoxing from and I didn't have it in my body. My mind told me to go into the bathroom 
and slam the door and go through our apartment bathroom cabinets and rip open every single bottle and pour them into my hand and pour them into my mouth. And I did exactly what my mind told me. The first handful, I remember looking at all those pills in my hand. I I get a handful of pills and I shoved them in my mouth and I made a conscious mental choice that I was done and that if this was life, I was done. And I thought to myself that my mom and my dad would be very upset, obviously, but that eventually they would be better off because I was causing so much emotional pain and drama. Again, today, I, I know that that's not the case, of course, but I was, I was operating with a mind that was seemingly hopeless. I laid on the floor and I laid there and on the bathroom rug that was red, I remember laying on it and I waited to die. I took about 90 pills of many different combinations and I laid there um, and I knew that what I took and the amount I took, I would not be able to survive it. And I had a voice inside me today, which I know was God. And it said very, very clearly and insistently, you need to call for help. I ended up calling my boyfriend who had come home for help. He was in the other room. He came in. He was very upset and scared, obviously. He screamed and cried and grabbed me up and picked me up and called 911. And the police came and they yelled. They put me in the ambulance. They took me to Oblenis Hospital where they pumped my stomach. They put two... Um, a tube down my throat to my stomach. They drank two bottles of charcoal. They said I wasn't leaving it without a psych consult. I yelled, I screamed, I swore. I was like an animal. I made them call my parents at five in the morning. I got to the ICU. Um, the doctor told me that the amount that I took was that they had a Ziploc bag that the police had gotten from my apartment with the bottles. And he said the amount I took, I would not have been able to be revived had I been in there 15 minutes later. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, I went out to the ICU, I was miserable, I wanted to leave, and one of the nurses was so sick of me complaining and yelling and causing problems that she told me I could sign myself out without a medical advice, AMA, and I was like, why didn't anyone tell me about that before? It was seven in the morning, I got my coat, I mean, I, I didn't have a coat, it was January 27, 1999, it was the middle of Windsor, I got my flannel, my tennis shoes, my shorts, my tank top, and I went out to the waiting room to bomb a smoke so I could figure out my next move because that's how I did things. So in We Agnostics, um, the chapter is convincing the person who does not know if they can believe that we have the capacity for faith. And what they say in this chapter is that we have the capacity to believe in our own thinking. And yes, right here. Sorry, on page 54. It said, but do we not believe in our own reasoning? And I always had faith in my own reasoning. When I went down to that waiting room to bomb that cigarette, my goal was I was going to figure out my next move on that walk home. What happened instead was God gave me a gift called the gift of desperation. And I was desperate and miserable and exhausted and broken. And I don't know if I was exhausted from that night or exhausted from like 10 years, um, but I was miserable and tired and out of plans. And on that walk home, I was just desperate enough that I called that woman that I had met before from my from my director that was an AA, and I told her what happened, and she told me to go to a meeting and to tell them what happened and to reintroduce myself. Um, and that's my sobriety date, January 27th, 1999. And I'm not going to say I'm done with my lead because um, that's not what happened. What happened was I never stopped. I never drank again, thank God, up until this day I'm sober. Um, but what happened was I went to meetings. I told them what happened. I didn't drink and I went to meetings. I did not do any work. I found a sponsor that believed in first step, first year. Um, I really like the people that said that the steps don't rise, um, that you don't 
rush into the steps. The steps will rise to meet you that you didn't get sick overnight. You're not going to get well overnight. Um, you need to slow down and just kind of like be with us and just keep coming back and it'll get better. What happened to me because I'm an alcoholic and I don't have alcohol in my body, which is my solution is it did not get better. It got worse. And in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, completely sober, no alcohol in my body. I became someone who became obsessed with suicide and um, thinking about how I could end all of this. I didn't want to drink anymore because I, was, I knew I, it wasn't working. I wanted to kill myself. And I learned enough language in AA to know how to like smile and be like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm fine. No, no, I have plans. No, thank you. Um, and I was yelling at my mom because what, that's what you do when you're a resentful, untreated alcoholic on the phone. And she yelled at me back because um, she's hardcore. And she said something along the lines of, are you going to work the steps to get better? Are you going to wait? I can never say this line. Are you going to wait to get better and then work the steps? Or are you going to work the steps to get better? We got in a fight. I hung up on her. I dumped my sponsor. Oh, because my mom was like, when are you going to do your four step? I said, my mom, I said, mom, my, my sponsor said first step, first year. So I'll do my four step in four years. And that's when she yelled at me. And then um, I dumped my sponsor. I came back to Cleveland and I got a woman who studied the big book. And she introduced me to the book. This is not my original one. I have like so many, but um, we highlighted and underlined and dictionaried and yelled. And she met me every single week. And she said that I needed to write all this down. I said, why? She said, one day you're going to take women through the big book. And every time I talk about this, I feel like emotional. Um, I thought she was insane because I was insane. And why on earth would anybody ever ask me to do anything or ask me for help in any way? But I listened to her because I was scared of her. Um, she ended up saving my life. She's no longer sober. She left the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous after 10 plus years of sobriety. Uh, I've actually had four sponsors that left after 10 plus years of sobriety. So the lesson for me in that is it doesn't matter what you have under your belt. All that matters is what you're doing right now. And if you're not doing the daily work right now, it doesn't matter how much time you have. So what ended up happening was I went, I, she took me through the big book and the steps and it changed my life. Um, she and I kind of parted ways as sponsor sponsee after step nine. And she kind of got really heavily into her relationship and we became like really close friends. And then I never really was doing step 10 at all. Not really like I wasn't doing it at all. I did a third of step 11 and I helped other girls in the big book every single day. And we worked together. I'm going to take you through the steps and tell you how I got to where I am today. So step one is the burning building, sitting on that couch, dying, alcoholic death. You heard my step one. I believe we do it before we get here and we just formalize it when someone explains to us that it's a mental obsession in our mind and a physical allergy in our body that I can't control the amount I put in once I put it in. And then when I don't have it in my body, I can't, I can't, my mind won't shut off until I put it in my body. It convinces me that it's okay to drink. Um, one of my people at my home group says that his mental obsession is the most reasonable sounding voice in his mind. So that's step one. Step two is all it is. No relationship with God is required. It is, sorry, I have very chapped lips. All step two is is asking the person who's dying in that room or of an alcohol death, do you believe there's a possible way out? Is it possible you don't have to die here? We think it's possible. Do you think it's possible for you? All step two is saying, do you think it's possible? And in this situation in the burning room, do I think it's possible that chair over there can break open that door over there behind that door is that skinny long hallway. And the only way out of the hallway is on the other side of the door where the fire department is, but they can't get to me because the hallway is blocked off with my garbage bags and boxes and mattresses and stories 
and reasons and justifications that I've carried with me since I was a very little girl. If you understood, you would know and all that stuff. And no one can get to me and I can't get to them because I'm blocked off. So step two is, do you think if we break that open, there's a possible way? And all step two is saying is maybe. Okay, you think it's possible? Okay, let's go on to step three. Step three is just saying, do you want to change? Are you ready to do this work? Let's, let's do it. Do you want to do this work? Um, one of my favorite people in all of Alcoholics Anonymous, Frank Harnaker, I can use his last name now because he's no longer on this physical earth. He died last week, which sucks massively. He was one of the first men in AA who really um, opened up his heart and showed me how to become human again. And I loved him and he was non-judgmental and I hope I can be half of the AA he was. But he said about step three that all you need to do in step three is a decision to do step four and the rest of the work. That's it. So step three in the burning room is do I want to do this? Step two. Okay, step three is yes, I want to do this. But after I do step one, two, and three, if I don't get up off the couch and break open the door and start pulling out the things in the hallway, then I could die in the room. I'd just go back and sit on the couch. So step three is useless if it's not followed up by step four. In our big book, it says after you do that prayer and you make a big deal about it, it says next we launch out on a course of vigorous action, all which was for naught, like because we're still blocked off from God. Fourth step is identifying what's in the hallway that's blocking me off from the only thing more powerful than my mental obsession, which is my higher power. And I do that out of the big book through a, with a sponsor that knows how to do that. I would not recommend climbing a massive hill, training for a marathon, doing anything really hard and overwhelming and dangerous without someone who knows how to do it and who does it well and does it themselves currently. I only work with people out of the big book because it's the only thing I know how to do and I will never have a sponsor that doesn't do that because I've had it before and it's not helpful. So step four and five I do with my sponsor. It, I, I give the instructions how to do step four. We go over my resentments, fears, sex, and harm. We identify what I do wrong in the situations when I get affected and how that pattern is over and over and over and it's exhausting and it's overwhelming, it's embarrassing and it's disgusting. You look at it and you're like, oh, and me and that sponsor, we take everything out of the hallway and she helps me identify and label each box because I have to put everything back in the hallway and I have to return it or repair it or make it better. It's not free just because I did it in my fourth and fifth step. I have to do the rest of the steps to get free. So we identify that. And now I have a little bit of room in the hallway to like skimmy by just to breathe a little bit so I can feel a little bit of God. After step five, I do an hour where I breathe and I sit with God. I like to write. Some people like to go out in nature. And I review what I did in that, in that fifth step with my sponsor and I decide, do I want to live like this anymore? Step six and seven, I smile when I talk about them because they're my faves. Um, they are like the heart and the, they're like the most important part of the whole entire program, but they're so not talked about. And you only do that one time after four and five, but then you take the principles of six and seven for the rest of our lives and do them in 10, 11, and 12. And I'll tell this story real quick. So I used to be a server and I loved serving in restaurants. I was really good at it. And I was you know, energetic and I knew what was happening. I knew what my, you know, my um, clients wanted, what the diners wanted. A good server knows when somebody is done eating. They either push their plate away, they put their silverware down, or they um, just put their napkin down. And a good server doesn't even have to talk to the client, not the client, sorry, the patron about it because they don't need to have a conversation. It's clear. They're the person is showing them that they don't want it. God is like a good server. And God walks by my table and sees, oh, she's done eating with that. If God sees me eating off the plate, 
touching it with my finger or licking it, God's going to be like, oh, Carly's not done. So I'm not going to take that away. So God's not going to take away for something from me if I don't show God that I'm ready. So six and seven is about how do I show God that I'm ready to change? And that I use that principle and that idea in the rest of my life. Eight, I take that list I had in step four, the whole first column of resentment, fear, sex, and harms. And I create it. Basically, I just rewrite it for step eight. So do not burn or throw your inventory anywhere. You need that to do eight and nine. In that eighth step, I my sponsor told me to make three columns next to each name. And it says, now, later, or never. And that's when I'm willing to make amends to someone. I pray about each person. So I think about my mom. Am I ready to make amends to her now, later, than ever? Probably later because she's really mad at me now. So I don't think it's a good time. you know. And we review each person. And me and my sponsor then go over it. And she gives me guidance on how to make amends to each person. And amends means to repair damage done. While I'm working on step nine, because it's going to take years potentially to, to get through my whole list, I start doing step 10. I did not do that for 13 years. Um, it's to no fault of my own. I The steps were available to me. They were in the book. I didn't know about it, but it doesn't matter. It was there. I had a guy named Kevin M. lead for me uh, about eight years ago at a meeting. Um, I was sponsoring a ton of girls listening to their drama and their emotional stuff. And I had three little kids and I was exhausted and I'd have to listen to each girl for like 45 minutes, talk about their boyfriend or girlfriend or mom or whatever. And Kevin, when he led, he's talked about step 10 and like the top of my head blew off. And I was like, whoa, I'm not doing this step. I, I didn't even do this at all. Every year, year and a half, I'm having to do another four step. And so whatever sponsor I have, I say, hey, sponsor, I need you to listen to my fifth step because I'm blocked off and angry and resentful and I, I don't know what's going on. I wasn't doing 11 in the morning. Meditation and prayer were not happening. Once in a while I would meditate and that was it. I was not consistent. At the end of every night, I did do the um, 86th paragraph where you ask the inventory at night, but I wasn't sharing it with anyone and I wasn't doing anything about it, so it was useless. So when Kevin taught me how to inventory, it completely changed my life. So I'm gonna teach you guys about it right now because I have four minutes. So step 10 is what all it is, is taking four through nine that we just did and putting it into a pocket knife step that I get to carry with me everywhere I go so I can inventory and share and ask God for help and change and fix what I did, the harm and change and all of that in step 10. So I'll do a step 10 with you right now. I am, am I resentful? So resentful means rethink, refeel. Yeah, I am I'm thinking about, I just started my um, new coaching business for to help people that are going through a divorce to help not mess up their kids. And I've wanted a career for decades that I'm excited about. And I am so excited about this. Like it's all I think about and all I want to do and time just flies by. But it's not happening in the speed that I'd like it to happen, um, which is like drop from an airplane speed. And so um, I'm thinking about that. Am I afraid? Yes, I'm afraid that what if I never get a client? What if I stay in the job I'm in for the rest of my life and I can never do anything else and all that stuff? Is it dishonest? Um, Yes. Because I can't see what God can. I literally started like three days ago. There's momentum. Things are happening. I've got lots of work to do. And it's not really my business. Is Not my business. Like it's my business. Like it's not my business that, to know about that. Is it selfish of me to be resentful and afraid about something that's not my business and I don't have enough information about? Yes. I am not trusting God. Even though I love God and we have an awesome relationship, I basically live like an agnostic 
70 to 80% of the t- every day because I forget that God's available to me, even though I, I have a tattoo on my arm that says God has you and I forget every single day. They call me Dory, see Dory from um, Finding Nemo because I don't remember that God's available. Selfish, I forget God. I'm sharing this with you. I usually send it in a text to my sponsor. I'm going to ask God. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to picture my hallway that is beautiful and clean and smells good. And I've worked so hard to keep clean. And I'm going to say, God, please take this fear from me. I'm going to trust you. And I trust that you're going to take care of me because you've never not taken care of me. That is um, six and seven. Do I own amends? Well, so far I have not harmed anybody. You don't have to always harm somebody if you're doing 10 steps all the time. So the things I can change are within myself. And Kevin taught me something called BEEP, and it's spelled B-E-A-P. So I can change my breathing. I can breathe. I can change my E, my expectations, which is I can expect that it's going to take the time it's going to take, that I'm a hard worker and I will do whatever it takes to make it happen, and that in time what, what I need will always come to me because it always has. A, I can change my attitude and trust that God has me because that God has never not had me, ever. And P, my perspective change is that I, I finally found something I'm excited about. I've been wanting to find something for literally since I first got sober. And I'm finally truly excited and feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's awesome. And I'm just impatient because I'm like the most impatient person that there is. And the last part of step 10 is others. I need to think of someone else. So I promise you I've got one minute left for my lead. Oh, my goodness. So I'm going to finish it up right now. Step 11, I start every single morning on my knees. I come down with my dog. We read um, 86 through 88. And then I sit and I listen to a guided meditation for about 7 to 10 minutes. Throughout my day, I talk to God. And at the end of the night, I do my inventory before bed. And step 12 is um, 100% of my day. I have three kids, thank God, and a husband I love, and parents, and family, and work, and sponsees, and friends, and community, and humans, and God, and my responsibility is to everyone, not just an AA, and my job is to behave, as my sponsor Sarah tells me. And step 12 is about, because of this, I no longer want to kill myself. Because of this, these steps in this program, I am a woman who I'm proud of, and I'm a good mother, and I'm a good human most of the time. And because of you in step 1 through 11, I've become in step 12. I'm going to end right now because I do not like to go over. And I want to thank you for being here, and thank Betsy for asking me.